0: Gracias a la vida. Thanks to life, which has given me so much. It gave me sound and the alphabet. With these words, I think and declare mother, friend, brother and Light Shining Down us sings the powerful voice of Mercedes Sosa and the iconic voice of Joan Baez. We here at Solutions to Balance, along with our guest today, Dr. Evan Belitis, Dr. Fred Sims, Bob and Dottie Lockhart, believe that if we all demonstrate an appreciation for life and view others, regardless of their geographic origins, as mother, friend, brother, the world becomes a more peaceful place.
1: You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, and we are Solutions to Violence, Welcome to you and to our four guests today. We're happy you can join us. Solutions to Violence is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you can do that by emailing us at solutions to violence one oh solutions to violence eight at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today- Today's Solutions to Balance
0: program concerns the University of Bellarmine's service trip to Guatemala and features four guests, Dr. Ivan Boletos, Dr. Fred Sims, as well as Bob Lockhart and Dottie Lockhart. Dr. Fred Sims is currently a practicing dentist in Louisville, Kentucky, and a Louisville native. He graduated from Trinity High School, the University of Kentucky, University of Louisville School of Dentistry. He has a DMD. He is a longtime youth sports coach with over 10 years coaching lacrosse at Trinity High School. His first trip, Guatemala was in 2018. Dr. Ivan Spilettis is a long-time participant in the Bellerman Service Trip. Dr. Spilettis has a PhD in philosophy from Tulane University and has taught in the Bellerman University Philosophy Department since 1995. She specializes in ancient Greek philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, political philosophy, and metaphysics. She served in the Peace Corps in Guatemala from 1982 to 1986. Dr. Spilettis became a practicing member of the Guatemalan Bellerman Service Trip in the of 2006. Bob and Dottie Lockhart, Dr. Fred Sims, Dr. Billy Eltis. welcome to Solutions to
1: Violence. Bob Lockhart, let's begin with you. You and your wife, Dottie, are parents of Corey Lockhart. As it happens, Cory has been a guest on our program. We had a fascinating conversation about her work with Compassion and nonviolence. But now we want to hear from you and our guests to tell us about Guatemala, the Bellarmine Service Trip to Guatemala, how the trips start as a service, and what service does it offer?
2: The trip started in the late 90s. My wife and I had finished a fellowship in El Salvador at the very end of their war. We were taken by poverty, the the generosity, the kindness, the, uh, the awfulness, all of those things at the same time. And we came back and decided that with the permission of the current president, that we would try and mm-hmm. start a trip to Guatemala to do service so that the students would have an awareness of the real world other than the one they live in. But then the hope was that they would come back and serve in the community they lived in.
1: Bob, you're an artist. What has your trip meant to that? What has it meant to your art?
2: Uh, Absolutely nothing. (laughs) The trip means that I'm becoming more and more, very, very slowly, a human being that believes that the message, no matter what the faith is, serve others. Care for others, and that's what we get out of this.
1: Dottie, you're a co-founder of the Bellarmine Service. What what interests you in this project, and, and why? For
3: the same reason that Bob was interested, we do things together. We spent time in El Salvador and brought a group of Bellarmine students to El Salvador while we were living there. But there wasn't any kind of structure in El Salvador, any kind of supporting group that would help us bring students there and have experiences in El Salvador. And so we met a woman who is with an organization called Hearts in Motion in Northern Indiana. And her organization uh, supports trips to Guatemala by all kinds of people from all over the country. Dentists, orthopedists, doctors, construction workers, firemen. And we were just a group of gophers, actually, when we started going. How
1: are you guys uh, connected to students? Are you teaching?
2: I'm no longer teaching. I'm retired after, I think, 45 plus years at Bellarmine uh, University. I want to go back to that question about the art as well. Most artists, I think, would say that their art is a a manifestation of their lives and it is not to be measured except that it is the best they can do at the moment in talking about what and who they are. And so Guatemala has impacted me in that way.
0: So the participants in the Guatemala Bellarmine service trip are mostly Bellarmine students. How many are involved? What's the reason for their participation?
2: Early on, we decided that the participation was going to be a full commitment to service trip. Many initially get it confused with a uh, trip the that is going trip. to a mission trip. But this is a service trip. This is to throw themselves full in. And that meant that we uh, determined there would be no credit the credit comes from above, there would be a, um, a concerted effort to bond them as a family so that when they saw the horrors of what was out there, which also exists in this city, but a little a little less evident, when they saw these things, they were prepared in a way because for about, I don't know how many months we're together, but we are forming the group and we are raising money to fund whatever we're going to do, which includes the students' airfare and uh, time there in the villages. And then we leave money because we're doing projects that are in service to the communities of Guatemala on the east side of Guatemala where we're working.
0: Okay. So Bob and Dottie Lockhart, you are parents of Corey Lockhart. We mentioned that earlier. Corey has quite a bit of standing within the peace, justice, and civil rights community here in Louisville. Did she acquire that philosophy from you?
3: I think we all acquired that philosophy from Father Jim Flynn at the Church of the Epiphany. He inspired us. We belong to that church. Corey was baptized there. Corey grew up in that church and actually she went on a witness for peace trip with Jim Flynn when she was still in high school so that's where it all started but she also and our daughter Shannon the four of us lived in El Salvador when Bob and I were there in 93 and 94 and we worked together in in the community there Bob taught not construction but uh, carpentry and we worked in a kindergarten so uh, it, as a family it, we just kind of developed.
0: Sure we know Dr. Dr. Father Jim Flynn quite well. So Dr. Fred Sims, you're you're a practicing dentist with a well-established practice here in Louisville. You got to be a, a living a safe comfortable life. Why in the world did you want to get involved in a service trip to a village in the Alapeno, in Guatemala, Apoleno.
4: Well, I'd done very little, but I'd done a little bit of volunteer dental work here in uh, downtown Louisville through the Dental Society. But a close friend of mine, Dr. Chris Mattingly, I- I'd always wanted to go on the trip. And he was really the impetus, from what I understand, behind the dental side of the trip that was added after it first began, I believe. Bob, of course, knows that better than I do. But Chris asked to go to a meeting with my son and I, who's a dentist, and told us that he was looking for a dentist to go to Guatemala on the trip this year. And I immediately said, I'd love to go. And Chris laughed and said, well, I was really asking Chris, my son, to go. But And and, and he immediately says to me, which is so true, he goes, there's a lot more involved to this than just going to Guatemala for a week and doing dentistry. And, and so that's, that's how I got involved, is that I was invited by dr chris mattingly and then once i got involved with this group you you just can't you can't get away from it like bob said we start meeting in september and we become a family and so it that's that you know I, i i wanted to go on a dental mission trip Dental service trip. This is so much more than that.
0: Okay.
1: Dr. Straley says so.
4: Our listeners are
1: clear about Guatemala. It's a Central American country, right? Yes. Your first trip came as a result of your Peace Corps experience. That was from 1982 to 86, right? Yes. Tell us where you were stationed and how did that affect you and your
5: your work? I was actually in two locations when I first started working. I was in Santa Elena de Chiquimula. Chiquimula is just south of Zacapa on the east side of Guatemala. Sacapa is where we go with the Bellarmine service trip. Uh, it's in the lowlands, not the highlands. Um, and when I went in 1982, they had almost shut down the Peace Corps mission in Guatemala in 1981 because of the civil war and the viciousness of Rio Smont. And my group was the first group back into the country when they deemed it safe enough to open it up a little bit. Uh, but they had moved most of their projects before were in the highlands because that's where the Mayan population is and a lot of really deep, deep poverty. But the civil war was the government, military going after the Mayan people. And so it was deemed unsafe. So they had moved everybody to the east. So I started out in Santa Elena de Chiquimula. I worked there for about a year and three months. And then they decided that the highlands looked like they were starting to be safer and they wanted to test it out. So they asked for five volunteers who might be willing to relocate and I volunteered. And so then I moved to to the highlands, to the western part of the country, Quetzaltenango, uh, Sheila, which is the second largest city in Guatemala, a little province north of it that was about 10,000 feet up, uh, called San Francisco La Union. And because I only had nine months remaining of my service when I moved there, I asked for a year extension because I felt I needed that time. Plus, I had some challenges in the move. So I felt I needed that time to have a good establishment and be able to make it possible for other volunteers to follow after me.
1: Guatemala is not a large country, but the Civil War was ravaging it. How did you view the violence against the people there?
5: So, you know, I've I've learned a lot more about the situation there since returning with the Bellarmine service trip than I think I was fully aware of when I was There, as a Peace Corps volunteer. What I knew as a Peace Corps volunteer, you know, from the minute that we rolled into Guatemala City, there were young men with military garb and guns at every single corner. You were told and you learned really fast you don't look them in the eye, you just keep walking you don't make any fuss, you don't make any noise, you never go by yourself if possible. We heard horrible, horrible stories about individuals getting killed, stories about women in particular being targeted, about women, in fact, pregnant women being targeted and having their, having being cut open and having, you know, as they're killed, they're also taking out the fetus, just horrible stories. And, and I've learned, in the last 15 years that I've been going that those stories are actually true. And there's a lot of evidence of that kind of massacre, of that kind of massacre going on. I mean, while I was there, you're just kind of living, you're trying to be careful and and you're not, I wasn't, I guess I was naive. I was just not aware of the bigger picture. Um, Rios Smont was deposed while I was there. All I knew about that was that one morning I woke up and there was martial music on the radio. There were no other, there. Was no other music. All of the radio stations had been taken over and my neighbor came over to tell me that there were tanks in the streets of Guatemala City and we didn't know quite what was going on. But it turned out that the U.S. had taken him up in a military helicopter and then allowed the tanks to move in. So I knew about that. I knew that when I moved to the highlands that people were really suspicious of me and suspicious of Americans. And I actually had some in retrospect, really scary encounters. But while you're there, you're just living it and dealing with it. But yeah, that Americans were complicit in the bad things that were happening to the Guatemala people. People knew that by rumor, and so they weren't necessarily happy with Americans or friendly towards them. And I had to be really very careful. And I don't know if I could, if I knew the kinds of things I would be facing, I, I don't know that I would have the courage to face them. But when you're there and you don't really know what's going on and you just have to live it, you, you just live from day to day.
1: Well, in our by the program, we, we try to con- to our listeners that there are a variety of levels of violence, uh, personal to uh, experience to social and political and obviously war in this situation. So Dr. Sayles, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the the other kinds of violence that uh, the uh, Guatemalans had to face.
4: I guess I feel like I'm I'm the traveler on this uh, journey and know so little in relation to it In relation to uh, what they do, you know, because I felt somewhat sheltered. I didn't see that violence that Bob and Dottie and Evan, Thea, all three have experienced. It's
1: a different kind of violence
4: with the uh, health, right? Well, you know, I'll tell you this, the the village that we go to, Prebo Modelo, they don't have water. And they they were trying to, to dig a well. And they weren't allowed to because the uh, political factors in that region, a relative of theirs ran the company who delivered the water to them. So they didn't want them to become self-sufficient. And to me, that's, that's the kind of violence that you see. You know, uh, violence from my standpoint, from a health standpoint, I guess it relates more to, to their poverty and lack of resources that, that creates that.
0: So Dr. Spilevis, you are a philosopher. Explain to us how the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Voltaire maybe influences your thinking when it comes to the the individual freedoms, rights, and recognition of the humanity that should be granted to the Guatemalan people.
5: So I was I was thinking about this question, and, and if I may, I want to wanna address it sideways. I know that from the United States, where we are, when we talk about other countries, we talk a lot about rights violations, and that we think a lot in terms of, we think a lot in terms of rights. And and Hobbes and Locke, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, were the founders of those ideas and concepts that are so fundamental to to how we think about it. Immanuel Kant less talks less about rights, but he talks about the dignity the inherent dignity of each individual person. And and there's the same foundation for all of them. And that is that we are thinking beings, we're rational. So we don't top each other up for supper, to put it crudely. And so that's there, but I don't think about, I guess, so let me say, I think there's kind of two different directions and I'm not sure which direction you were thinking of with this question, the one direction that I think about is when I think about my time in the Peace Corps, but when I also think about the kinds of things that that America sends, the United States sends envoys over to keep a watch on, you know, they're looking to see whether individuals' rights are violated, you know, at the polling booth or, um, uh, or or James, what you just asked about, you know, is, is not providing adequate health care. Is that a violation? Is that a violation of rights? And yeah, I mean, there's an amazing, amount of corruption. There's an amazing amount of poverty. A lot of the poverty is because of the corruption. I don't know the numbers, but the United States sends a lot of money to Guatemala. When we go year after year and work in Zacapa, we see that the money's not getting there. It doesn't make it from whoever is receiving it from the U.S. government. It doesn't make it to the communities where we work. And Fred mentioned Pueblo Modelo. This was actually some of the students on, on one of our trip a couple of years ago. I should have thought about it, but I didn't. Pueblo Modelo means model village, okay? And it was established because the village that the original inhabitants of this place, th- their village got wiped out in an earthquake back in 1998, I think, something like that. But it's a model village. They were, they were situated in this place that does not have direct access to water. It's like about as non-model a place as you can imagine. So it's it's almost an insult or it It is an insult to call it the model village. And those villagers are working so hard. They dug down 200 feet by hand. They took shifts. They stopped digging when there was actually not enough air because they had gone so far down that they couldn't work because they were just going to pass out and 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 the government's not going to step in to help them. And the the brother of the mayor of the really posh establishment next door is making money by selling them a gallon, you know, big thing of water for five quetzales every day. And whereas he could just turn on a spigot and it would really be no it would be no major issue for him. I'm sure he has other ways to make money, but he won't do it. He, he he won't do that. So I guess I want to turn the question around, and, and that is because so often when we emphasize the language of rights, we think about the individual and the rights that the individual has, and you have to assert those rights against everybody else. But all of these years, and this was the case when I was in the Peace Corps, is really the Bellarmine Service Trip, and what we emphasize every single year when we get our new group together, it's it's not about the individual. It's about community. It's about caring about community. It's about people with resources, realizing that there are people without resources. And if you have so many resources, shouldn't you offer something, especially when you see someone right there who doesn't have them? And, and that's that's true for the Guatemalan government, although I'm not sure that it registers with them. Hearts in Motion is trying to do that. And every one of the students and the community members and the faculty and the staff they they live it they experience it they talk about it we all talk about it about why that's so important about about why and 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 I don't know that rights is the right language for that, but to see the other as an individual with dignity, with being, with worth, and you have so much, should you not offer something? And to me, that's about, that's about caring about the other. And that is a philosophical question, but all of the, those modern thinkers that want to talk so much about rights, I don't think it's so much about that. It's about caring about others and caring about community, and the real appreciation of the dignity of the other is 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 seeing them and offering that.
1: Okay. That's a tough thing to say, yeah. I mean, that's a tough thing to see. I think um, you know because we experience a lot of that. I think in the United States, but not nearly that much violence. I guess. Well, let's hear from all of you on this. Uh, how does the trip participants, How do the the participants help in the, the people in Guatemala, the students.
2: The students, well, I want to back up a little bit and say that, uh, th- that there was a specific reason we chose Hearts in Motion. They had an established program. They were well-respected. They always had a um, an in with the government so that, and generally through the wives of very corrupt presidents. And so they the presence uh, also guaranteed us a certain amount of safety. And in in the early years, that was really essential because we were looked upon with suspicion. And we were white kids and they have televisions and they know what, what television tells them about our lives. So like in El Salvador, they would say, why would you come here and suffer? And we would say, well, we're not suffering. We're going home to our hot showers, but we're becoming aware. Now, we take groups of 30 students each year, some, some uh, older adults, but again, we try and form a family. Hearts in Motion allowed us the time and the place to put our program forth. So our program is, is designed to bring about a, a new knowledge to the students about what is really going on, again, so that they will come back and apply that to their, only li- their own lives, usually after they're done with the university or college level. The one thing that you learn almost immediately is that in general, the poorest are the kindest and those with money are less less kind.
3: Less willing to share it.
2: Less willing to share it.
3: I'm Dottie and I just wanna add to what Bob said that we start meeting with with these kids in September. They apply, they they write a letter telling us why they like to go and what they can contribute and what they hope to get out of it. And then in January, we meet every single week Until we go on the trip, usually the first week in March during spring break. In the time that we're meeting every week, we also plan fundraisers. Each of the people participating in the trip commits to raising personally $900. And it costs about $2,100 for each person to go. And so we raise all the rest of that money together. Working hard. We have events probably almost twice a week between January and March. Huge yard sale that should have happened last weekend January. at Bellarmine's Knights Hall, where we make the well probably between between ten and fifteen thousand dollars every year. And we have other big events, and then just all kinds of little things <laughs> happening. But we're also working with the kids to well, we we take from the yard sale anything shoes and clothing that would be usable for the people in Guatemala and we have we have a a drive at our church where we raise we have people bring women's cotton underwear to the people in Guatemala because they can't buy it we have a duffel bag of filled with goods that every student or every person brings so we bring 30 duffel bags of stuff down there mostly clothing shoes sometimes toys books And so we participate, all the kids participate in that way in getting ready for the trip. It's not just that they're going to pack their bag and go, but there's lots and lots of work, lots and lots of interaction with us. And that's one of the ways that we build our family with everyone working hard together, laughing together, preparing together.
2: If if I might add, this is Bob, even the yard sale, everything is Everything is designed with a purpose so that there is a lesson uh, that we hope we can instill in them. So the yard sale, we are served by many, many people at night cleaning the halls, serving us food, cleaning our our uh, classrooms, etc. at Bellarmine. On the first day uh, afternoon, noon, uh, we invite those people to the yard sale and invite them to choose what they need to live. And we serve that need by facilitating them a way that they can afford to get those things and take them home. And we we drive it, we drive it in some cases to their homes, etc. On the first day, we're collecting for the Humane Society. On the first day, we're, we're collecting for various organizations on the West End that need things. On the first day, we have got numerous organizations that like Catholic Charities that will Center. come or St. John's Center for the Homeless that will come to get things so that again, the students can see that basically we are second to the needs of the poor. And so that being said.
0: So you raise money through yard sales. How else do you, do you raise those funds for the, for the trip? And how can our listeners contribute?
3: Well, we also have a bowling event every year, and that's uh, also a big fundraiser. We sell casino cookie dough, have nights at restaurants, fundraisers at restaurants, and and a couple of of the bars that the kids go to. And then we also just solicit. We write letters. We ask everyone to write letters and uh, solicit that way. So we ask the students to write to their high schools, to their churches, to their families, and we feel like that all of those people then are a part of this trip. We're bringing all those souls to Guatemala with us because we've got their support. And we ask for their prayers on the trip.
2: Also, all of the students cannot afford to go and and pay that $900. So they all know that if they put in their most, the amount of time required and do their best to raise the money but fall short, that is gonna be taken care of by another member who has uh, easier access to money, and it's going to facilitate us again as a family working together to put that forth.
1: This is a, a, another question for any of you. You're real concerned about the students, of course, uh, having learned something. Uh, what is it that you've learned yourself from the trip and, and, and helps you grow personally?
4: I'm, this is Fred. I'd be happy to answer that, because I probably had the most growth of, of any of them, because I, I probably needed the most growth from this. Bob said it succinctly, everything about the trip, in my opinion, benefits the people on the trip and everything else. You know, everything has a purpose. So their thing is that each one of the students and community members have to write letters. You can't send emails. You can't send text. In today's days and time, that's that's an unusual thing, especially for a 19, 20-year-old person, 21-year-old, to write a letter, put a stamp on it. And it's, it's part of growing up. It also, I think, teaches them, and I've told them this, that they may not have the money now, but when they're 50 years old, they might be the one that's getting a letter from someone or involved with another organization. As far as the growth, I, I, I bonded and, and Bob became a mentor. Before we go on the trip, we're invited down to St. William, which is Bob and Dottie's church, the Sunday before we leave. I'm a lifelong Catholic, grew up, went to Trinity and everything. And I had never been to 13th and the Note before, to St. William. And I'm now a member at that church. That church is a very strong social justice church. And the other thing that Bob did was, and he encourages it with the students, you know, he told me on one of the last days, the first year we went, he said, hey, have you ever been to the St. John Center? And I said, no, I went to a fundraiser one year for that. And he said, well, I'm there every Tuesday and Wednesday morning at seven o'clock. Come see me. And I went down just to see him. And he introduced me to everybody. And lastly, he introduced me to Raymond, who was a volunteer coordinator. And Raymond asked me if I could come to a meeting, an orientation on Thursday night at six o'clock. And I said, yeah. And he said, great, I'll just go over everything with you then. And I said, I guess I'm volunteering at St. John's Center. And I, until they shut us out because of the pandemic, and I went back for a a certain amount of time. uh, But I've been going two days a week since that time. And I love the place. So there was another group, Chris Mattingly, and I think Bob and Dottie had started this. Once a month, we would go downtown and join Forgotten Louisville, I believe is who it is. Who serves a hot meal to the homeless. And we would provide oranges, bananas, paper towels, toilet paper, granola bars, candy, things that they could take back to their encampments. And uh, again, it was just another way to become involved with marginalized people and realize that we are all the same. You know, I, I see it every time i meet St. John's Center and those men walk in, we're all the same people. We're just at a different point in our life.
1: Yeah. Uh, Dr. Spalliosis, um you told us something that really shocked you about the, the uh, water. Well, uh, were there any, any other things that surprised you about your visit and the people
5: there? I'm sorry, I w- about when are you talking? Now or, or earlier?
1: your recent trip
5: or any of them actually, yeah. So if I may circle back, I wanna add something to what Bob and Dottie and Fred were just talking about and then I'll come back. The learning on this trip is such an important part and Bob mentioned about that we become a family. Fred mentioned that that we become a family. The learning doesn't just happen. All of the new participants have to do a presentation over the course of the fall on some aspect of Guatemala. So we're trying to inform ourselves before we go. And everybody has to, I I believe in active learning rather than passive. So you prepare a presentation, you're going to know it, you're going to know it better. And we cover the economy, we cover the history, we talk about the United Fruit Company uh, and Standard Fruit and today's Dole and Chiquita. Uh, We talk about the politics, we talk about the US involvement, uh, we talk about the poverty, we talk about all kinds of things. And the students each year, They present an informational 10 to 15 minute presentation for everybody. And so we're a little bit informed before we go. When we go there, so many will comment that seeing it in person and having heard about it aren't the same thing. So it becomes more real when they get to see it in person, but so that it really gels and becomes something that they can take away with them. Another really important part of the trip. And we really start doing this in the spring and we do it throughout our week in Guatemala. And then when we return to the United States, and that is we meet together as a group after a day's events. And we talk about our experiences, feelings, reactions, thoughts, around some central reading or question. And we call that processing. And it is those reflections I have really come to appreciate over the years as the place where the deepest learning happens. Because first of all, everybody has to share something, some thought, some reflection, some feeling. Uh, They also have to listen to everybody else's. And, And you see a real growth in everybody not only from their own sharing but in the hearing the the thoughts and experiences the thoughts and experiences of others and when you put that whole picture together that's what really makes the experience think deep into everybody's bones and spirit and heart and then want to carry it forward and do something, do something more. So I just think that that it's, a, it's just uniquely Bob and Dottie designed it like this. I think it's really marvelously, I think it's marvelously constructed. Every time I go, the um, Two things. One's very positive. I have come to appreciate since I first went back in 2006, the people who work with Hearts in Motion, who work as our leaders and guides when we're there, the volunteer firemen who drive us around, the field coordinators, Bert Echeverria, Emilcar or Bert—Bert Bert is his nickname. He was raised in—he's Guatemalan. He was raised in the United States and then moved back to Guatemala. And he's really been the leader of the Guatemalan operation of Hearts in Motion for several years now. And every year, it is such a treat to go back and reconnect with him. His hometown is very close to where to where hearts in motion has its center and he says it every year that he he's there to serve his own people and he's so deeply grateful that we have this group coming we bring this group to help with his own to help with his own people i think that personal contact is just so it makes it more gives it an extra dimension of depth and meaningfulness for for the students and for everybody who who goes with us on on this trip so that's always such That's always such a nice thing, and I'm always reminded of how wonderful it is that Bert and Donna Bell, who's the construction crew leader, and Donna Bell's son, whom we met last year, how they're all committed to helping out their own communities and are so patient with us who are non-skilled laborers going down there to offer a little bit of time and they will just make extra special arrangements so that if we've given money towards constructing a room addition onto a schoolhouse they'll they'll cut they'll do some of the preliminary work, but then allow us to go in and lay cement and and feel like we're doing something, even if they can do it so much faster and better than we can. But they are welcoming us into the project. And and I just love seeing them every year. So that's always such a nice, that's always such a, a lovely thing. I guess one small thing, it, but it's maybe emblematic of, of a lot, that the first time I went back in 2006, I was looking to see what were the differences. I hadn't been back for, for 20 years. And the, the one thing that I noticed that was the major difference is there were a lot more paved roads. Since 2006, there's been a lot more cement block construction. And cement block construction generally means that there's some source of funding for the cement block construction. These, these houses, which are small, we help build them, are usually, what, 10 by 12 feet, for a family of four, five, six, okay? They're tiny. But where was the family living before we built that? Well, they were living in a little lean-to that was made of sticks and mud and tin and plastic. And that's what they were living in. It is shocking to me that between 1982 and now 2020, 2021, there are still people living in, mud and sticks and tin and plastic lean-to's that are still cooking over an open fire with some twigs that they actually, it takes a full day's journey to walk far enough to where there's, there's wood to cut for them to be able to feed that fire and that that has in fact not changed. And even when they move into the cinder block construction, which hearts and motion, we help pay for, we, you know, we put money towards that, other visitors help pay for, they, if they have family in the United States and they're sending back, they might send money to help pay for, but that there's still so many of those lean-tos, that's actually deeply shocking. And that people still, people live like that. But then let me come on the positive side. And and Bob and Dottie mentioned that, Dottie mentioned that living in those circumstances, when they see us, when the children see us, when the when the mother of the house sees us, they smile and they're kind and they say, pase adelante and they invite us in and, and they help us out as we're doing our feeble best to offer a little bit of our labor for the week and feel like we're being somewhat useful. So it's not, not maybe the way you ordinarily think about shock, but all of those things have their own, are notable in their own way. And Guatemala is that land of contrasts like that.
0: Yes. Yeah. So this is the question any of our guests can answer. What's one thing did you wanna bring back to the American people that they probably don't know about Guatemala and people?
5: May I say something? So, and I forget, I think it was two years ago. so, So it would have been 2019. And we were coming back, so we're coming back at the end of that first week in March and we come back to the news about these caravans of people that are making the really long trek up through Central America. And coming to the United States, and we're coming back to the news about how they're coming here because they think they can get an easy handout, and, and they're coming here because th- that somehow this is just, this is something easy. And I was just so stunned hearing those news after being in Guatemala for a week, because all I could think of was, did no one look on a map and look at how far These people came and the fact that they walked and that many of them were, in fact, walking without shoes, because to this day, a lot of people do not have shoes. And who would do that? No one does that thinking, oh, wow, you know, I'm going to easy land. People only do that if what they're leaving is so dire, so dreadful, so dangerous that even that... Several hundred or thousand mile trek under very uncertain conditions with nothing except the clothes on your back offers you the only hope that you might have in your life. And it was just flabbergasting to me that there was no recognition in any of the news reports that I heard about what the reality, this isn't easy street, nobody does that because they're looking for a sinecure or going to Disneyland. They do it only because they are so desperate. And I think there is so little comprehension of that level of poverty and impoverishment and lack of hope and lack of resources that we can with equanimity publish stories like we publish but they're so far from the reality that, that, that I don't even know how to begin to address it. And how can you get someone to open their eyes and their ears and their heart? And frankly, maybe the only way is if they see it for themselves. But most of the people who talk like this are probably not going to.
0: So, Dr. Ivanthea, a new administration has come into the White House, the Biden Harris administration. The Trump, the Trump immigration policy, a highly controversial policy, greatly diminished immigrant migration from Mexico and Central America. We know that thousands of migrants immigrating from Central America, attempting to enter the United States, are coming from Guatemala, Honduras, maybe. What should we ask? the Biden-Harris administration to do in terms of establishing a more humane
5: immigration policy? So, and probably Bob and Dottie know more about this than I do, but I think the first thing, my understanding is under the previous administration, they either made asylum such a narrow window or they cut that, closed that door entirely. I think asylum has to be reopened. I think that the danger, there's so much drug trafficking for example, the danger, the the danger that young women are in the the domestic abuse, everything, a lot of it tied to poverty, a lot of it tied to perhaps other factors also. Asylum is needed. So I think that reopening that door would actually be be a really really good first step. I think putting policies and procedures in place that that move things along in a reasonable kind of a way, that would also be a a really good step as, as well. I mean, I don't know that people know this. For example, if I'm in Guatemala and I want to come to the United States and I want to go legally, my understanding is I have to make an appointment, I have to have money and I have to pay. But once I've paid, I'm not guaranteed getting the permission to come, but I'm out of pocket that money. And if I didn't get the permission, then I have to go back and I have to try and get the money again. And we're talking where the average income for the poorest people might be $365 a year, $365 a year right? So if I have to pay $100, that's an awful lot of money that I'm, in fact, having to gather and to put together. But we don't know about that. We don't have any idea how many times, what's the average number of time that someone has to go and make this petition before they have a reasonable chance of it, in fact, getting accepted. So again, if, if you make almost no money, and you're really doing your very best to gather this together, you know, you're pretty desperate. And if at a certain point you can't get that together, then you might take the really desperate last step of trying to come in and ask for asylum, right? Because you couldn't get that permission. So if they can't get it there, can we do something more and, and expedite the process here? Can we make it fairer? Can we make it clearer? Can we can we just stop pretending that that they're just here, that anybody who's coming in, for, especially from the southern border, is coming in for a handout. They're coming in because they're desperate. So I just think that that something like that would be would be really important. You know, there's all these reports floating out there. People who are here, even illegally, how much money do they send back? They send tons of money back. If you want really good way of helping Guatemala, it's not clear to me that it's a good idea to send money to the Guatemalan government and not have it make it to the people. But it might be a really good idea to have people making money here and sending it back home, right? Because that's going to people who actually need it. And that's very, very helpful. And in the meantime, they're not stealing it. They're working for it and they're working really hard for it. So I don't have an answer to this. I haven't studied it, but I just think that we first and foremost have to just change our attitude and have to open our eyes and ears to the fact and our hearts to the fact that if someone's asking for asylum, they're pretty desperate.
1: Yeah, this is what we need to hear. And we're really happy that you guys are here to to share this with the the, the personal stories. I think mean a whole lot to people that, that otherwise would not hear like on the news, like you were saying.
3: For about a year, I was part of the Grannies network that went to the bus station in Louisville twice a day. Uh, I went three times a week, but twice a day, a bus came from McAllen, Texas, with people who are going to be granted asylum. And, and the, the law is that once they are approved for asylum, they can come into the United States and wait for their hearing. And that's what Trump did away with. But every day, at least when I first started coming in March, there were probably six or seven, up to 10, sometimes 15 people on a bus every afternoon who were heading to different parts of the United States to live with family or relatives who were going to wait for their asylum. And we would give them drinks and fruit and snack bags, winter coats, scarves, gloves if it was winter. And... And send them on there and make sure they got onto the bus to continue on their way because there is always a chance that there are human traffickers in the bus station who are looking for vulnerable people, especially if they were young women traveling alone. Anyone who went to that bus station and saw these people coming would know that we are not having rapists and drug dealers and killers coming into our country to invade it. If there was time between the time the bus came in and the time the bus was leaving, we would spend time listening to their stories. And they're usually, they were women with young children who were fleeing domestic violence. Women whose husbands had been killed by gangs, whose family members had been killed by gangs. And they would get, they'd go to McAllen and... Brownsville were the two towns that sent buses up here to this part of the country. And they were provided a, a bus ticket and us, and, and oftentimes just a sign that said, I don't speak English. I'm going so-and-so to such-and-such such a place. Can you help me? And that was if they were at bus stations where there weren't groups of grannies like we had in Louisville. And then all of a sudden they stopped coming. There were fewer and fewer. And there are some times when I would go to that bus station three times a week for two weeks and not a single person was coming on the bus because they were all then in camps on the border and not allowed into the country. So I'm waiting. I think all of the grannies are waiting to hear that we are granting people or going to be granting people asylum and the ability to come into the U.S. and wait for their asylum hearings like existed in the past.
2: I bristle at this immoral, disgusting person that we just had as our president saying that these people are rapists and killers and, and whatever. For 16 years, we housed illegal people. We had an organization that got them a legal aid, that provided them furniture, that provided them housing, that provided them jobs, that took them to Kroger. And I don't remember any of them being rapists, killers, mm-hmm. or anything of that sort. They were wonderful poor people who needed a break and we we're in the position to do it. I would like to see an honest, dignified process that says that this is exactly who these people are. And then acknowledge the fact that without them, our roofing industry, all of the uh, food that's that's harvested, all of these uh, horse industry, Churchill Downs would not exist without the Latinos, the gardeners, the, the tree cutters. I mean, endlessly, and yet we pretend as if they are people coming in to take our jobs. Well, they are supplying the jobs we don't want to do, and they're good people, I, I, rarely. I mean, in, in, 20, in 20 some, 26 years, I don't remember meeting any of these people that supposedly were being stopped at our borders. And now we still have them in cages, cages. Like they're animals, like back in the 30s when we exhibited the black people in zoos. Have we learned nothing? I get a little excited.
0: Okay, <laughs> all right. So, so we here yeah. at Solution to Balance, and you've mentioned this, Dr. Abentea, um, that people in America don't know what really is going on, what has happened in Guatemala, because it's just not uh, something that, that makes the mainline news. So, organizations like the Peace Corps, Doctors Without Borders, other organizations like the Bellarmine Guatemalan Service Trip, they never make the mainline news ABC, CBS, NBC. So people don't know what's really going on in Guatemala. So when there is a person of standing that comes out with stories that are just terribly wrong, Americans don't know that they're wrong. So why is that?
5: I can't answer a causal question. I I have no, you know, why is it? I, I presume not interested. I presume, or maybe more gently, have no inkling or comprehension that, the viewpoint that whoever it is who does the mainline news has, that there's any different viewpoints, that their viewpoints limited or not the whole picture or that there's something more here. I mean, I just, I don't know the answer to that. If I may circle back when I, you know, one of the things, some of the people I have the most arguments about, I find that it's, it goes back to my time in Guatemala because I really feel that living something, seeing it, experiencing it, and not just hearing about it second, third, fifth hand really makes a difference. You know, I said earlier how we try to educate ourselves and, and the, and the students and the new participants have to give a presentation, but what the really means doesn't register until we go there. So you can talk about the prov- poverty and present the statistics and even have some videos, which, you know, they're really, everyone's really good at put, finding really great videos now. And, and so you, you know what a Guatemalan little girl looks like, but it's not the same as seeing that in person. You know, you don't necessarily notice that the little girl on the video actually is barefoot. And when you go there, you realize that not only is she barefoot, but she's running over rocks foot because that's just what her reality is. I don't know a substitute for actually seeing it, living it and experiencing it. But the problem is, is that the people who my guess, tend to be in the positions where a power and where they're informing us, they're not, they're not going to go. And I don't know how to get the message to them if they don't.
0: Yes, Amanthea, I totally agree with you. But most Americans are not going to make that trip to Guatemala. And most Americans, adults anyway, vote. So if mainland news is not putting on the reality that exists in Guatemala, here we are a little tiny radio station. We're trying to do that, but it makes it easy for uh, people with standing and power to mislead because we're not getting that information from mainline News. That's that's my point. So man, I don't know if that's the question, but.
5: <laughs> and if I may, I mean, but the other thing, I think about this in terms of teaching too, because so much of what I teach is teaching people to question their assumptions. And then each year I have a new crop of students. So I feel like I'm pretty feeble. You know, I'm not out there. I'm not doing great things. I definitely don't have a lot of power. But I've come to, I don't know, maybe I'm assuaging my conscience that if each year I can continue to have this contact with students who will then go out into the world and have contact with others, I for so long thought that we could solve things from the top down, just put the right structures in place, put the right laws in place, get enlightenment from the top. And I actually don't see that that happens. I have not seen anything to make me make me uh, optimistic that that's the way to do it. And So I don't know if it's resignation or if it's realism, but if we take 30 people with us every year and of those 30, 20 are new and one-time visitors to Guatemala. And so then next year we take another 20 new people. And if I, in my classroom and Bob, when he was in his classroom and taught a lot of social justice, if we can be constantly bringing this to the attention of those in our orbit, maybe that's the hope. And it's not one that will solve anything quickly. But maybe that's the only way to spread the word and the news and your tiny little radio station too uh, and which maybe is bigger. I'm not trying to denigrate but I think that the more people who talk about this but we have to work within our spheres of influence and I don't think we can leapfrog because I'm not sure where we would leapfrog that they want to listen to it. So I think maybe we just have to keep telling the story and we have to keep talking and we have to keep calling attention and then spread out and maybe it slowly the message will be heard. Absolutely. I
2: wanted to say that uh, while well, back, I said that the, the trip was about small things that were lessons. So for instance, we visit the garbage dump and it's an appalling place, that reality, the people that make their living off the garbage dump in all over the world. So the the one of the things they're appalled about is the food, is the, the role of food for some of them in, in the fact that they are actually eating garbage. Part of that trip is when I came back and 12 years ago or so, I started working with the homeless. I learned a lesson. And one of those things is that when these people are eating garbage, they're or Paul. What? All you have to do is come back to go to in and around McDonald's on Broadway and you'll see the same phenomenon. It's just that we don't want to see them. What they begin to do is see them. They are not invisible people like they were for me when I first started working the homeless. I would say, oh, he's a wino. I'd make a decision. Now it's Bill and Jim and I worry about them like a father would worry about them. Sure.
1: Thank you for that. The COVID pandemic actually has made a a huge difference. Are you planning to... uh, uh, Reschedule the trip. So
5: not for this year, but next year, I hope, hope, hope that we can do a full trip the way that, uh, the way that we would ordinarily do, we get started in the fall. You know, it takes, it takes six months, seven months for us to, to get the whole thing going. So I'm really hoping that, that we will be able to, if things are not open in September, but they look like they're opening by December, we might try and get some truncated group going. And can I circle back? You had asked how people can help and Bob and Dottie, you know, they talked about the yard sale and we didn't do that this year but if people wanted to contribute, they can definitely. So to Hearts in Motion, if they wanted to send it to meet at Bellarmine University, and then we can, on behalf of the Bellarmine service trip to Guatemala, we send everything to Hearts in Motion, but we can designate that we want it to go towards helping with doing some building, you know, with the crew that they have, but they don't have resources. And, and it's a real blow that we, in fact, have not been able to hold because of COVID to hold any of our regular fundraisers and not just to pay for our trips, but to have a pot of money that we can then hand over to Hearts in Motion to put to their projects. So if, if people wanted to donate this year, donations are always acceptable.
0: How do our listeners get a hold of Hearts in Motion? Maybe the Bellerman service trip. Uh, is there an email address?
5: So I can give you my email address if you wish. Bellerman service trip to Guatemala and at Bellerman University, and it'll get to me. That's the okay. best. To reach me.
0: So folks, we're out of time. We want to say thank you to our guests today, Dr. Fred Sims, Dr. Imanthea Biolotis, and Bob and Dottie Lockhart. The Solutions Balance program that features Dr. Sims, Dr. Biolotis, as well as Bob and Dottie Lockhart will be repeated Tuesdays, February 16th at 8 a.m. and Wednesdays, February 17th at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at
1: forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. Once again, I'm Jamie McMillan with co-host Jim Johnson. Thank you for joining us to discover more solution to violence.